16. We have been studying uh, through Judges now for a while, and we're looking at Samson. So uh, we're going to read just a portion of uh, chapter 15 together out loud uh, before the sermon. We're going to study the whole chapter. So uh, if you have a Bible, could you stand with me and open up to Judges chapter 15? If you don't know what that is, it's in the front of the Old Testament there. Um, I'm just going to start at 14, starting at verse 14. We're going to study the whole chapter. We're going to start at verse 14. Um, and then after I read 14 through 20, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll reply or respond by saying, thanks be to God. And of course, you're thanking the Lord. He would be so kind to give us his scriptures. But secondarily, uh, when you say thanks be to God, let that be within you a, uh, a yes to God. Yes, I want to obey the things that you teach me this morning. Help me be obedient to those things. So starting at verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put his hand on it, and with it he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. And as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand at that place, it was called Ramah-Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, you have, granted me this gr you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow uh, place that is at Lehi, and water came out of it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called en Kakor. And at this day, and it's called this at Lehi at this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, ask for your special blessing this morning by the power of your spirit to help us see and understand this chapter, uh, see and understand how the, the life of this man, Samson, certainly can have major implications upon our life. Help us see and understand the good news of Jesus uh, and apply it to this Old Testament passage and that we would... Um, not try to make ourselves the hero of the sermon. We would not try to make Samson the hero of the sermon, but always that we would keep Christ as the hero and that we would um, hope in him, trust in him, and our only hope would be Jesus. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, as we said last week, we've been going through the book of Judges. This is the 12th of all the, all the 12, and there's been a, a dramatic shift looking at the life of Samson to go from the very first particular judge that we had, Othniel, to, to Samson, how Othniel was married to Aksa, who was a faithful woman, godly woman. And now you have uh, Samson married to a Philistine, not even an Israelite. And the, the downward spiral of depravity that's taking place in the book of Judges. Uh, we know that the whole point of the book of Judges, we've said this multiple times, is Judges 21, 25, is towards the very end or the very last verse. It says, and in that day, everybody did what was right in their own eyes because they had no king. And so it shows us when we have no king, namely for us, when we don't have King Jesus in our life, just how depraved we get. That's, that's the whole point of the book of Judges. It just gets worse. And this is really kind of uh, for the, regarding the rest of the book. This is the high point in regard to the rest of the book. It's not going to get any better. It's only going to get worse. And that's not saying much that this is the high point. This is a pretty brutal, pretty brutal uh, 
time going on in the life of the Israelites. Uh, as a matter of fact, we, we quoted this last week, but I want to make sure we understand who Samson is. We looked at him last week. We're looking at him this week. And then one more. Samson, we can just kind of know him because he's a real big, huge bodybuilder and he you know, has his eyes gouged out and he knocks over the, the temple and everybody dies. And we're like, ooh, Samson's awesome. He's actually not. Um, Keller says this about, about this section of chapters 14 through 16. Tim Keller, our pastor, says, in this section of Judges, we find by far the most flawed character in the book of Judges, a violent, impulsive, sexually addicted, emotionally immature, and selfish man. And most disturbing of all, the Spirit of God seems to anoint and use, uses his fits of rage and pride and temper at, at different points uh, to, to help him. So Samson, as I said, uh, is not necessarily a great guy. Now, when we're reading chapter 15, it's meant to be read with humor. So Remember when this book, when we're reading this, this was actually recorded several years later and the Israelites that are reading this were kind of looking at these pages, looking back at what happened. So it was recorded uh, much later. Um, and so as chapter 15 is being read by us, we actually should read it with a bit of, of humor. Uh, it's meant, that's what, how the Israelites read chapter 15. When, much like Ehud, whenever the left-handed man that stabbed the, uh, stabbed the uh, guy on the toilet in chapter 3, um, it's in there. Uh, it's supposed to be read. Don't flip yet. You can find it later. Or just go listen to a really good sermon on, a, on Judges 3 about 12 years ago by a guy named Fudd. Um, anyway, so uh, the whole point is, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, looking back uh, on this, the Israelites hated their enemy. They hated the Philistines. Not in this moment. They seemed to be super cozy with the Philistines, but they, they, they were supposed to hate. And so as they look back at Samson and look at how he just kind of toys with the Philistines, they laugh. One, one uh, writer says this, the chapters 14 through 16 are one long big joke on the Philistines. The story is full of subtle but powerful irony, humor at its best. The Bible uses humor at times when it has a very sober point to make. So that's what's happening here. It's making a big, big point. The humor is not only human, but also divine. So dear reader, don't be glum. Don't be overly concerned about the Philistines. Think how your Israelite brothers would react to this story. Go ahead and laugh a little. So 15 does have uh, a, lot of, a lot of funny parts. Now, before we go into 15, uh, the title of the sermon, as you can see, is Gospel Relationship Restoration. So uh, we're going to, as we go through this, see that Samson has a major problem with relationships. And uh, he doesn't do this. He doesn't use and apply the good news of what God has granted to him and all the people of Israel and to us that by faith we can be known as righteous before him. He doesn't apply that good news. Uh, but what I want to do is, uh, and because of his tragic life, show you how in his messed up life, how when we don't live like this, but instead we apply the gospel to our relationships, how it brings restoration to the multifaceted relationships that we all have. Uh, the way we know this is um, among many places in the Bible, one place in Matthew chapter five, this is in the Beatitudes, chapter five, verse nine, it says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And it says, the, and when it says that this peace that God seems to make, uh, it seems to be implying it's happening between fellow men. Like if, if I have uh, enmity with Andres, God will bring peace to us and, and we can make peace with each other because God has first made peace with me. Like God has forgiven me of my sin. God has brought 
ultimate peace with me and him. And if that's happening, then therefore that can be extended to fellow men. So it says, blessed are the peacemakers for they, and we don't have anything. We're good. Um, but they shall be called the sons of God. So what we see here is that because ultimate peace has been granted to the sons and daughters, if you're a believer in Christ, ultimate peace has been granted to you uh, because of Jesus. And because of that, he has made that between you and him. You have now the ability to go and make peace with people in your life, whether they are um, really, really difficult to get along with or you just have some small little thing. Let me, let me read about this peace that's been brought to us. It's in Colossians chapter 1. For in him, that's Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, that's Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. So peace has been brought to all believers in Christ because of the cross. So you have peace with God. Now, because of that, you have uh, the ability to go and restore and renew friendships, relationships with other people. And so in this uh, set of verses that we're going to look at, we're going to see how Samson damages the relationships around him and doesn't necessarily bring any healing, but in that, if you have these kinds of damaged relationships, how the gospel actually heals, can heal these relationships. So starting at verse 1, we see this. Now, if you remember, uh, Samson made, a, he, was, he was at his uh, wedding, which took a long time. Uh, and he made a little bet with him in chapter 14. And he's like, hey, listen, if you can solve my riddle, basically he had killed a lion and they didn't know. Uh, then if you can solve my riddle, then... Uh, I have to give you 30 pairs of clothes, basically, and 30 draws. And if you can't, then you have to give me, that's underwear in the South. You have to give me 30 pairs of underwear and, and 30 clothes. And they're like, fine. And at the very last second, uh, these were Philistines. These were not his people. At the very last second, they, they brought his bride-to-be to the side and said, hey, we're going to burn your house down uh, and kill you and your dad if you don't tell us the riddle. And she's like, fine. And so he she, she bugs him and she, he finally tells her the riddle and then they, they solve it to him and he gets super mad and he goes off to this place called Ashkelon and he kills 30 of the Philistines of which they are and then says, here's your clothes. I took it from your own people. And then he storms off to his parents' house. Uh, and that's where we are in, in 19 and 20. Uh, and we see at the very end of 20 and Samson's wife was given to his companion uh, who has been his best man. So at this particular time, Samson thought, well, uh, I'm just going to go home for a little while. He doesn't know what's happening, but his, his wife, unbeknownst to him, was given to his best man. So it says in verse 15, after some days uh, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went uh, to visit his wife with a young goat. So he thinks to himself, I've really messed up. She, she was, as it says in verse, chapter 14, really good in my eyes. I'm kind of missing her. Uh, I'm going to go back and I've cooled down a little bit. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to try to make her my wife. And apparently in the Old Testament times, the, the Old Testament equivalent of uh, chocolate and roses is a young goat. So he comes with a young goat in his hand. He's like, hey, I got a young goat for you. Let's make up. You know, that's what he's thinking in his head. You can just hear him playing the whole conversation in his hand. Sorry, I killed your people and, you know, got mad at you for the riddle, but I brought you this young goat and hopefully that's going to make everything okay. So uh, that's why he brings a young goat. It's kind of the Old Testament equivalent of chocolate and roses. So after some days uh, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to his wife with a young goat. And he said, I'll go into my wife in the chamber, but the father would not allow him to go. So he wants to, he wants to consummate the marriage. And the dad's like, no, you can't do that. Uh, verse two, and it says, and the father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. 
So I gave her to your companion or to your best man. Um, and so Samson obviously is not going to like this news because he thought everything was going to work out. And so the father just really believes that this, this isn't going to happen because, you know, you stormed off and it's been maybe at least a month maybe or so and you're coming back. Um, and so then the father says something really dumb. And then he says this, uh, is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Ouch, right? No, really, seriously, ouch, don't, that's not, that's the last thing the older sister wants to hear is how much more beautiful the younger sister is. Dads, don't ever do that. Um, just a, you know, that's just a side note of advice for free. Um, and so, isn't she more beautiful? Please take her instead. Uh, and so, what we see here is uh, Samson is reaping the consequences of his kind of rash, impetuous, angry behavior that he's had. And he's broken and destroyed his marriage here. It's in anger been completely destroyed. And this is a real consequence. So uh, the first thing I want, to, I want you to see, it's not on the screen. I, just, I'm, I know usually I put them on the screen, but I just want you to hear these things today. First is about broken relationships and the gospel, what it can do. The gospel restores our marriages. The gospel can restore our marriages. Here, it's not going to happen because Samson's such a mess. But the gospel does restore our, message, our, 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 our marriages. Uh, in this text, Samson clearly does not grasp this truth. Uh, Paul explains to us in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, how uh, the gospel can, can do this. In Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 28, it says, He who loves his wife loves himself. For no, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So when you come, get, whenever you get married, uh, the two become one flesh. And so since you're one, if you hate your wife, it's the equivalent of hating yourself. If you mistreat your wife, it's the equivalent of, of mistreating yourself, which is not smart at all. Like that's, that's the most ridiculous thing you should ever do. And so since the gospel can restore our marriages, it's because you wake up to this fact. He who loves his wife loves himself. And he who tries to mistreat his wife ultimately mistreats himself because you're one flesh. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes. That's what he does with his own body. And since your wife is part of you, you should do the same to do, for her. You should nourish and cherish her um, spiritually just as Christ does the church, for we are all members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So we see here that those that are believers, um, the gospel can restore their marriages because their goal in their marriage is to make their marriage resemble or reflect Christ in the church. And when will Christ ever leave his church? Never. Never. How many times will Christ forgive his bride? Indefinitely. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. The gospel can restore our marriages. The gospel can restore our marriages. It's not easy. It takes time. It's really difficult. But the gospel can restore our marriages. Starting at verse 3 then, we see the next uh, part of relationships that can happen. It said, verse three, and Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So he's reverting back to being rash and he's going to do something else. This time I'm going to be innocent of what they do. And his declaration of, of being innocent here kind of rings hollow. Uh, it clearly says here when he, whenever he's about to do this, uh, 
in other places, it says in verse 19 in chapter 14, it says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And that's when he went down to Ashkelon and killed the 30 men. But here it doesn't say the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And so uh, it rings hollow that he's going to be innocent here. I think this is him just having a hot head um, whenever he's going to do this. What does he do? This is what happens. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of their tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stack grain, the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Now, I have no idea how he did this. I mean, I have no clue how he caught 300 foxes, tied their tails together and set them on fire and just let them run through and, and put everything on fire. No clue how he did it. However, it sounds pretty amazing. It sounds pretty amazing. Um, but to this day, by the way, this is why the favorite internet browser of the Jewish people is Firefox. Um, that's a corny joke. I had to throw it in there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, when I thought of it this week, I'm like, I'm going with that one. So anyway, uh, ridiculous, right? But here's the thing, though. Um, whenever he was wronged, whenever he's feel, uh, wronged, uh, he knows that he's done something wrong. He has to try to maintain his innocence here in verse three. This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So the second thing we can see here about the gospel is this. The gospel frees us up in our relationships that we have with people. The gospel frees us up to admit guilt rather than try to maintain innocence. Whenever we know we've done wrong, our first thing to try to do is to say, I'm still innocent here. But because of the gospel, we don't have to do that. You are free to admit your guilt whenever you have wronged someone rather than try to maintain innocence. The reason why is the most important person in the world, if you're a believer in Christ, has already forgiven you. If God has forgiven you of the guilt, guilty things you've done, you don't have to maintain innocence. I really didn't do it. I'm innocent. If God's forgiven you, then you can bring that into your relationship where you wronged somebody else and say, I trust you, Lord, that if you've forgiven me, if I repent before these people, I can ask for their forgiveness as well. And so the gospel is so freeing in your relationships. You don't have to try to maintain innocence when you're clearly guilty because the most important person in the world has already forgiven you. <clears throat> now, um, we see what happens here. They, he burns their stuff down. Uh, and then verse six, when the Philistines uh, did this, they said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. Basically, he came back, he didn't get his wife, and so he's mad, so he sets everything on fire. Uh, and they, after that, and they said, if this is, and the Philistines came up, I'm sorry, I need to finish verse six. Um, and the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with him. So, in the fire. So, what happened in the previous chapter, in verse 14, what was, what was declared would happen in uh, 14, 15, the threat has finally come to pass. Again, I don't know what it is with the book of Judges and their love for burning people and burning things down, uh, but they did it. They said they were going to do that in chapter 14 and it actually comes to pass shamefully because of Samson, it happens. He actually brings this about. He's actually guilty here. He gets his wife killed. Um, and so because of his hard heart, trying to maintain innocence rather than admit guilt. He acts out rashly, and here he gets his wife killed. Uh, and the great news is for us in the gospel is we don't have to try to maintain innocence and hold it together. We can be totally honest. We can say that we're a mess, and we can praise God who forgives us and really makes us innocent. 
He's the one that we, we don't have to maintain some kind of false bravado innocence. The truth is, because of the gospel, we can confess all of our sin. We can admit who we are. We can admit that we're guilt because God has actually declared us to be innocent. Now, it also, in this, he, he retaliates here. So the gospel also frees us from the need to retaliate. He's going to do that at least uh, in this chapter three times. And if we count chapter 19, there's at least four retaliations. There's a retaliation in 419 where he kills everybody and takes their underwear. Uh, there's retaliation when he ties 300 foxes together and burns them. In verse eight, there's another one. When he found out that they uh, had burned his, his uh, wife, uh, in verse eight, it says, and he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow and he went down and stayed in the cleft of rock of Edom. So as soon as he found out that they had killed his wife uh, and burned her to death, uh, you can see in verse seven, as Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you and after that I'll quit. And he struck them hip and thigh. This hip and thigh is just a, a Hebrew idiom that means he, he really, really uh, brought great vengeance to them. He viciously retaliated and, and hurt them bad. Um, so that, that's the second uh, retaliation that he has. We, we, we've already seen another one uh, and read it where he beats him with the jawbone. Uh, and so we have, we have a bunch of instances where he, he, fee, he feels the need to retaliate. Now here's the good news about the gospel in, in relationships. Um, the gospel actually frees us up from the need to retaliate. We don't need to retaliate. When you think about the gospel, and I mean the death of Jesus on the cross, that's what I mean. It frees us up from the need to retaliate to people. We don't have to. So the third thing about our relationships is the gospel frees us from retaliation. Let me, let me tell you exactly why and let you uh, experience what I think is amazing freedom in regard to retaliation. Romans chapter 12 says this in regard to retaliation uh, and how we interact with people in light of the gospel. If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ frees you up to never, ever, ever have to retaliate. Because Jesus has said he's going to do it for you. So this is what it means. God will ultimately repay. You don't have to. And here's why. If they are not a Christian and you have been wronged by someone that's not a Christian, you do not have to retaliate ever because God has promised you that his retaliation is going to be infinitely worse than yours. And you can just trust him. Now, we don't want that, right? It's not like we're like, well, I can't wait for God to smite you because mine's going to be, you know, all right, but he's really going to get you. So I hope it happens. Don't trust Jesus. Like we can't say that, right? That's, we want them to trust in Jesus and become believers. But ultimately, if they don't, we know that this world is actually just and God, for those that are unbelievers, will bring not retaliation, but justice. And so we don't need the t to do anything back. And here's the second part of that is this not for those that are not Christians, but if they are Christians, if they are Christians, you don't need to retaliate. And here's why. Because Jesus has already absorbed the payment for their sin. So you don't need to give it back to them. On the cross, Jesus has already absorbed it all. So if you feel the need to retaliate on someone that is a Christian, what are you saying about Jesus's cross? You're saying it's insufficient to really pay this guy back for what he's done. 
If they're a believer in Christ, Jesus died for all of that sin that they did against you. And so you can trust that and say, well, if Jesus's cross was enough to forgive me, Jesus's cross is certainly enough to forgive them. And so I don't ever have to retaliate. The gospel frees me now to know all of it was put on Jesus. And so the gospel is just amazing in healing our relationships and bringing uh, restoration to them. And it frees us from the need to ever have to retaliate like he does. So we have uh, verse 9 here uh, through 13 where we're going to see a major, major problem of uh, the Philistines. I'm sorry, of the Israelites. The Israelites uh, in verses 9 through 13 have a, uh, a major lethargy towards the Philistine people. They, they don't care that they're being oppressed. But before we get to that, I want to zero in on one particular thing. It says, and the Philistines came up and encamped at Judah and made a raid on Lehi. This word Lehi uh, is the word jawbone. Uh, and that's, it's named jawbone because of what's about to go down. Um, and so they just decided to name the place jawbone. That's pretty cool that you mess somebody up so bad, they named the city after how bad you messed them up. It's bad to mess people up. We're Applying the previous thing I just said, so never mind that. Verse 10, and the men, the men of Judah said, uh, why have you come up against us? They're saying this to the Philistines. Now remember, Judah is Israelites and the Philistines, uh, they camped around them and Judah saying, why have you come up against us? Um, and they said, we have come to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. And three, so uh, then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, so you've got the Philistines, the the pagan oppressors coming up to Judah who are Israelites and saying, basically, we're about to take you down. And Judah's like, why are you trying to take us down? We don't be taken down. And they said, really? We want Samson. Uh, And they're like, okay, don't kill us. Uh, We're going to go to Samson. And they go to Samson and we're like, we're going to get you. And Samson's like, don't kill me. He's like, we're not going to kill you. (laughs) We're just going to take you to the Philistines so they can kill you. Um, So we're not going to kill you. Um, uh, But basically, before we get into the story, what I want you to see is this. Um, We find Samson hidden in the cleft of rock of Edom, totally by himself. Totally by himself. What does that tell us? What does it tell us? It tells us that Samson, um, because of the way he's lived thus far, has found himself as, in a negative sense, uh, a, a lone ranger. Because he doesn't understand that God's created him to live in community, because he's acted so impetuously and rashly, He is alone now, totally alone. He hasn't applied the good news of God, the good news of the righteousness declared to him, and it's uh, sequestered him off by himself. But the gospel, when brought to our relationships, doesn't cause this to happen. The gospel frees us up to not have to live life alone. We are now free because of the good news of Jesus to be able to be around people. Something that should stand out is how he is totally by himself. He's pushed away. He's alienated his parents. He did that back in chapter 14. Um, He's gotten his wife killed. He's alienated his companions from his marriage. And because of his anger, now he's separated himself completely from Israel. He is completely and totally by himself. He is a lone ranger living his life totally unchecked by God and totally by his own life, uh, totally by his own standards. Tim Keller looks at this and says, this is not good. Intimate fellowship is the best way to ensure the integrity of our inner lot and outer lives. Samson is notable here for his aloneness. Not only does he not take advice, but he never works with others. He never builds team. He is a one-man wrecking crew. 
That is a prescription for focusing on outward impressiveness while suffering from internal disintegration. Since no one is close enough to see our spiritual lives or to encourage and challenge us about it. And that's what's happening. He has not allowed anybody to get close. Because of the good news of the gospel, he is totally free to. But because he hasn't applied the righteousness of Christ to his life or the righteousness of God that's declared to the Israelites, because he hasn't done this, he sequesters himself and lives by himself. But since we are totally forgiven, we are free now to live our lives with our brothers and sisters in Christ, not in isolation, but instead in God's design and community. God lives in community forever in the Holy Trinity and has always lived in community, thereby giving us the standard that he wants us to do the same thing. So we don't have to be like Samson here and be totally by ourselves. Now, let's go back to what's going on here. The, the lethargy of the Judahites and ultimately all of Israel uh, in regard to their relationship with these foreigners, the Philistines. And it says this, um, we have come, and verse 10, and the men, why have you come up against us? They're talking to the Philistines. They said, we have come to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson. So they're expecting, you know, a bit of a brawl. They're expecting Samson to say, I don't want to go. Um, and so, so 3,000 come down and said, do you not know the, this is the worst maybe the scariest sentence in all of verse, chapter 15. We can just kind of breeze through it and not realize, whoa, this is horrible that they're saying. They say this, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Think about what they're saying. This is total lethargy. These are the oppressors of God that God has said, never are you to let foreign people rule over you. And they're going to Samson and say, don't you know the foreign people rule over us? And we've just... We've just accepted it. We've accepted the oppression all around us. This is absolutely terrible. This is acceptance of wretched oppression. One, one commenter about the ruling over us says, sad, sad words. Here is a people who have acquiesced to bondage. They have said yes to just being enslaved. Who can no longer imagine, they can no longer imagine anything but the status quo of being enslaved. Who see deliverance as a threat to peace. They see being delivered by Samson as a threat to the ongoing oppressive peace that they have. Who look upon Yahweh's enemies, the Philistines, as their rightful lords. Wrong. God's your Lord. Israel is a people who can forsake Yahweh's instant, instantly, but who would not think of being faithless to the Philistines. What a pitiful question. So here, Samson's trying to actually wrongheadedly free them from the oppression of the Philistines. And they see Samson as the enemy rather than the, the savior. Now, he's not a good guy and he's doing it in a lot of wrong ways, but ultimately he's actually bringing about salvation for them. He's bringing about the end of oppression and the person that's saving them, Samson, they're looking at him as the enemy and fighting against them rather than fighting against the Philistines. They no longer despise the true enemy, which is the Philistines, and they're actually rejecting their savior or the redeemer or their judge in this particular time, Samson. Keller says this, um, people can bear the name of God's people, but would rather live at peace with the world sometimes and worship their idols than rather be free to worship God. That's what's happening here with the Israelites. They would want to cling to worshiping idols. So there's really kind of two things here that the gospel can do for us in regard to our ultimate relationship with God. One, the gospel opens our eyes to our true enemies. Here, it's, they, if they would see it, their true enemies, the Philistines, not Samson. And 
It teaches us to run to our Savior. They're not running to Samson for help. They're pushing against him. Now for us, obviously, it opens up our eyes to our true enemy, namely Satan, sin, and death. They are our true enemies. We will, we will rush back into sin and rush back into evil and rush back into that all the time, thinking that's what really brings us happiness. And we will push away our real Savior. But instead, when the gospel comes, it shows us that's wrong. Satan, sin, and death is wrong. And the gospel teaches us instead not to run to that, but run towards our Savior, Jesus. That's not what they're doing here. They're doing the exact opposite. So let's ask some questions. Do you see fighting against Jesus do you see Jesus fighting against you or do you see Jesus fighting for you? Do you see leaving uh, the true enemy, Satan, sin, and death, evilness, sin, uh, being involved in those things as bad or as good? Do you see the declaration that God gives you as you are righteous, now live as such? Do you see that as an amazing free gift or some kind of enemy straitjacket that just keeps you from doing what you really wanna do? That's what the Israelites were guilty of right here. With the time that you've been given on earth, would you really rather worship your pet idols or would you rather worship God? I think these are key questions for us to ask. Key gospel questions for us to really think about what's going on in our life. Galatians 6 says, it is for freedom that you've been set free. It's for freedom's sake that you've been set free. Meaning the great news about being set free from the bondage of sin is you don't have to continue in sin anymore. You actually can run away from it, unlike them, and run to your real Savior. Now, the good news is your Savior isn't flawed like Samson and does it wrongheaded. He does it perfectly. He saves you perfectly. And he is uh, totally trustworthy to run towards, unlike this guy. But do you do these things? Do you, uh, do you truly want to uh, live in light of the fact that you've already been, de been declared completely righteous? The gospel frees us up now to see our true enemy, run from it, and run towards Jesus. One commentator says, God does not call us to negotiate with sin but and evil, but instead to wage war on it, to nurse a holy hatred towards sin in all kinds of multifaceted forms. The good news of, the, of Jesus wakes us up to these things so that we run towards Jesus and his righteousness, not away from it. Now, um, here's what happens. They say in verse 11, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What is this that you have done to us? And he said, as they have done to me, so I have done to them. What they've done to me, I mean, he's just so immature, right? Verse 12, and they said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson said, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves and kill me. And they, no, 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 we're not gonna kill you. Verse 13, we're only gonna bind you and give them into their hands. We're not going to kill you, parenthetical. We're just gonna let them kill you. <laughs> so we're fine. That's not really on us at all. Uh, and it says, so they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up for the rock. It, it's surprising. I think the, the, the Judahites that came down were not anticipating Samson being so compliant, hence the 3,000 people they brought. But he's like, okay, we can go. Um, and so uh, in verse 14, uh, they came up to Lehi. Again, the writer's just letting you know, it's supposed to have a little humor. When they came up to the place of the jawbone, <laughs> The Philistines came shouting to meet him. So they're running out to him. We're going to get you, right? They're all super excited. And then here it is. 
Uh, and verse 14, the same thing that happened in verse 19 uh, of chapter 14. See in chapter, 9, chapter 14, verse 19, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and then he killed those 30 men and took their draws. Uh, and verse 14 here, and it says, then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his hands became as flax that caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. This isn't that he got like so hulked out that he's like, Rah! it's actually that they just melted off and now it's time to hulk out, right? He's, he's going to like freak out and uh, start killing these people. And it says in verse 15, then he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Now, fresh meaning that it still had all of its razor sharp teeth intact. So this is going to make for one nasty mean weapon. Right, And he clearly has no problem with breaking the Nazarite vow and not touching dead things. He did that already with the, with the honey. So he's just going to do it again. Picks up this jawbone. And then it says, um, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Uh, in verse 15, and he found a fresh jawbone and put it in his hand. And with it, he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said with the jawbone. So he, after he kills 1,000 men with the jawbone of a donkey, which is pretty amazing. He, uh, he taunts them with this little pun. Now in English, we kind of miss it. Uh, it says with the jawbone of a donkey heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. We're like, wow, you're pretty, you're pretty bad, Samson. Um, but donkey and heap actually rhyme. And so the Hebrew, uh, instead of English really pulls out the pun more. Uh, so I'm going to read it to you. If you have children, you might want to cover their ears. Uh, and one of the commentators versions, um, I don't do this and I'm not for cussing. And I don't think this is a cuss word because it's really the word for the donkey. So I'll just going to say the word for the donkey. So a better way to understand with the jawbone of a donkey heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of a donkey, I was struck down a thousand men is better. Like the, the taunting pun is with the jawbone of a don uh, with the jawbone of a, the, the word for donkey, you know, that sounds bad. With the jawbone of a donkey, or with the jawbone of a, I have piled them in a mass. That's, that's what, so with the jawbone of a, I have piled them in a mass. You can, you can get it. Uh, that's more the, the taunting pun that he's kind of given them. Just saying, I've killed a thousand people here uh, with, a, with a jaw. So um, what we see after that is in verse 17. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And that place was called Ramah Lehi, you know, something with the donkey. And it says he was very thirsty and he called upon the name of the Lord. Uh, and so here, here becomes something really interesting. He's kind of finished his hulked out moment, you know, and the Hulk, whenever he, he fights and he goes back and he kind of sits by himself and his, he's got the big baggy shredded clothes and he's like calming down. Uh, that's what's going on. He goes off by himself and he's sitting there and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, verse 18, it says this, he called upon the Lord. Where did this come from? This is the first time. He's only going to do it one other time. This is the first time we explicitly see Samson call out to God. He's going to do it in 16, right? Because he, he, he says, God, help me push these things over. And that's it. He calls upon God twice. And here's one of them. Here's one of them. He calls upon the name of the Lord. Now, um, whenever we are believers in Christ, whenever we are truly been saved, whenever we've been truly uh, declared righteous and we get that, the seventh thing, I'm at number seven here. We, the gospel shows us, or we are shown how to really communicate with God because of the good news. He does not do a great job, I would say. There's pros and cons to this kind of short prayer, which we'll go over. But nevertheless, he's very thirsty and he calls upon the name of the Lord. Samson prays here. And so we see, and I want to make sure we I highlight for us, uh, 
those that have been saved by the gospel, your relationship with God has been restored. Therefore, your prayer life should reflect that. That's the point that we're trying to make here. And so uh, there's some, this is certainly not an ideal prayer. Here it is. You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Oh, that's pretty good. Hey, God, you helped me. Look at that. You have, you have granted. It wasn't me. I recognize that it all comes from you. And now I shall die of thirst and fall to the hands of the uncircumcised. Like you did all this and you're going to make me die of thirst, God? So bad side. You know, it, it's, it's got some pros and some cons. So pros are he actually prays. This is huge. That's, that's an amazing thing. If, if you're not a prayer, starting to pray, huge. I mean, I'm not making light of that. Start praying. Next, he acknowledges that the salvation only came from God. Another good thing, he realizes that without God, he is nothing and he can do nothing. Um, third, he acknowledges that he's God's servant. He says, by the hand of your servant, he realizes kind of who he is and his posture, what his posture should be before God. God's the Lord, he's the servant. And he recognizes that God's actually the provider of his physical. Now, the way in which he acts for it, you're going to make me just die of thirst? That's bad. But there is something in there where he's recognizing, God, you're the, you're the provider of all things. I'm thirsty and you can provide that. Those are the pros of the prayer. The cons are, um, his request certainly sounds kind of like a vending machine prayer, really transactional, like, give me something so I can have it. I need, you got, let's go, give it. It's, it's, it's very transactional. Um, the next thing is, he certainly seems to have a low trust in God. He just, he's been delivered by God in amazing ways. And he's like, now I'm gonna die out of thirst. So he doesn't seem to really trust God. His gratitude for all that God has done thus far uh, seems to not be that great. He seems to be pretty immature in his gratitude. And he certainly lacks humility before God to, to say what he's saying in the way that he's saying it. So what we, what we see is this, is um, in regard to Samson and the way that he interacts with God, Samson is an amazingly gifted person, but he's really pitiful at walking with God. So what does that mean? It means this, it's possible to have the gifts of the Spirit and lack the fruit of the Spirit. It's possible to be quite gifted and not walk with God. It's possible to have the gifts of the Spirit and lack the fruit of the Spirit. You can have skills and gifted, and that's for doing, but you don't have character or the fruit of the Spirit, and that's for being. Meaning this, we can be super concerned about what God wants to do through us to the neglect of what God wants to do in us. And God's interested in both. I'm not trying to put one over the other, but we think that God's happy with me and I'm really living for God because of the stuff I'm doing to the neglect of the fact that God wants to do stuff in you and who you are as a Christ follower. Maintaining and holding on to your identity in Christ and growing in that, not just doing stuff. So it's possible to have the gifts of the Spirit and lack the fruit of the Spirit. And we want to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit in our life too. Who we are as a Christ follower, not just what we do. Not just what we do. So what can we learn about this prayer then and apply it to our life? The first thing we can learn is our prayer life, rather than our religious activity, is probably the best indicator of our spiritual health. Meaning, um, how we pray, what we pray, and how often we pray shows us much more about our love for Jesus and our dependency on Jesus than what we do for Jesus. What you do for Jesus is great. That's great. It really is. But how we pray shows us much more about our spiritual health than just our religious activity. That's what's going on with Samson. He's a doer, 
meager at best, right? But not a not the one that dwell or uh, not one that spends time with God, not one that walks with God. He's he does not walk with God well. And so the first thing that we can see about this is our prayer life, rather than our religious activity, is the best indicator of our spiritual health. So how you pray. Is it transactional vendor prayers or is it God, you're holy. God, you're worthy. God, you deserve everything. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. How we pray, what we pray, the contents, and how often we pray. You know, are we thinking about prayer a lot? Um, Samson uses God's strength, but doesn't depend on God except just in extreme situations. That's it. So uh, our prayer life is a good indicator of our spiritual health. The second thing that we can learn from this is we should depend on God every day for everything, not just extreme circumstances. It's in extreme circumstances that he's depending on God. And it's so easy for us to do this. When a tragedy befalls, we're like, oh man, I got to pray for this. But the, the mundane kind of day-to-day, like I got this, I got this, don't have to bother God, I can do this, no big deal. And that's not, that's not how we are supposed to live our lives uh, as believers that pray. We should depend on God every day for everything, big and small, not just extreme circumstances. We shouldn't depend on him in most terrible things where they're so bad that we can't handle them ourselves. Now we need God. Instead, all situations, big and small. Prayer shouldn't be our last resort. It should be the first thing we do. And our prayers won't sound like Samson's if that's the case. They won't sound like that. So what happens? What does God do? (laughs) I mean, this is amazing, right? In amazing grace and mercy, God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, at the jawbone, and water came out of it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he was revived. This is unbelievable mercy. This is unbelievable mercy. Nothing really that's brought us to this point has made us think that Samson is walking in such an honorable way that the Lord just, yes, I want to bless you. Most of it has just been kind of half-hearted self-interest. And God's saying, yes, I want to bless you. And he revives him. Therefore, the name was called in Hakor, which means the one who calls upon the spring. The one who calls upon the spring. So in this place called Jawbone, is this one place where it says, Samson called upon the Lord for a spring of water and it came. It's pretty amazing that in the place where the battle is, where he may or may not uh, have done it in the most righteous way, there's one place that says, even though it was a half-hearted kind of not necessarily good prayer, this is, called, this is the place where it says, one that called upon God for spring and it welled up and God provided. And it was called Lehi to this day and he judged Israel for the, in the days of 20 years. So what does this mean then? What can we, what can we conclude? I want to make sure you realize that as we've kind of been dogging Samson <laughs> the, these last couple of weeks, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, when it's, kind of going through the hall of faith, you know, from, you know, the beginning of the Old Testament as it going through, as you get to the, the judges period, it said, what more shall I say? From, for time would fail me to speak of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the sword of the edge, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. And he keeps going. Samson, despite all these things, makes it into Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith. That's pretty amazing, which demonstrates to this. 
despite all these major flaws, God still loves him and sees him as faithful. Well, then that gives me and you great hope. Despite our major flaws, which I am full of them, perhaps you would say, yes, you are too. God still loves you more than you could conceive of. And he has given you um, righteousness and he has put faith in you and he wants you to live that faith out. The second thing I want you to see is this, um, as we conclude. First is that Samson makes the hall of faith and God loves you despite your flaws like Samson. The second thing is that Jesus really is the hero of this sermon. Not Samson, not me, not you, but it's Jesus. We must be unlike the Judahites. And in verse 11, when they say, when they say, don't you know the Philistines are rulers over us? We must be unlike them. We can't see, we can't say, we're just going to accept oppression and reject our savior. Instead, um, we need to embrace our savior redeemer, Jesus, because he is not like Samson who does it half-heartedly and meagerly and sneaky and you don't know if you can trust him. Instead, he is the most trustworthy person. He willingly, when we were still enemies of his, gave his life on the cross for us so that we wouldn't have to die. And because of his death, if you confess your sin, uh, he's faithful and just forgive you your sin to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you repent of that, he, when we were still enemies, when you trust in him, grants you forgiveness, grants you righteousness. And so Jesus is the absolute hero that we can run away from sin and run towards always. So that makes him worthy of all our adoration. It makes him worthy of not wanting to live for idols, instead living for Christ. Our savior did not reject us. Instead, when we were enemies, he gave his life so that we could be forgiven of all of our sin. And now we are empowered to live for his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this text. We thank you that you are so kind to us. We thank you that the gospel brings amazing healing to all of our relationships with our fellow man, with ourself, with you, that the gospel heals all these things. And we thank you that as we look at this uh, chapter, that we see that. And so we pray that we would run towards our Savior and see him as good, not away. That we would run towards him embrace Jesus for all the things that he's done for us. Live in light of the righteousness declared of us and give our lives to you as an offering of worship. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.